0: This morning we continue our series in Advent this Christmas, and our scripture comes to us from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, "How this be since I'm a virgin?" And the angel answered her, "The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your rela- your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we're going to take a careful look at Mary's response to divine grace Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then I want us to consider our response. Mary is this uh, passionate young woman who believes God, trusts God, and is a glorious disciple. And may this be an encouragement to us. As we consider her response, we see that it exemplifies receiving God's gospel, receiving God's good news, and having a real heart of discipleship. Before I continue, I want to quickly say to those of you who may be here this morning, Uh, exploring Christian faith and you're curious, you have questions and uh, you may say, well, this is one of the things that makes it difficult for me to wrap my head around Christianity are these wild and phenomenal miracles like the virgin birth. And I would invite you to consider we actually do have some common ground here because if you are a person of non-faith, then at the moment you believe in essentially the virgin birth of the universe. We've both picked our phenomenon. Either there was a God who thoughtfully spun the cosmos purposefully into existence, who then wrote himself into human history by incarnating it in Jesus Christ. And yes, there is this phenomenon that as Christians we believe is a historical occurrence, this virgin birth, this amazing phenomenon. But to believe that all that is and all that has ever been came from nothing, was moved forward from no particular purpose, no divine mind, that is also a phenomenon. And so we do have some common ground here that we are both grappling with the question of how it is that we got here. In the 80s, the late Stephen Hawking wrote a book called A Brief History of Time. And he famously posed a tremendously humble question by uh, by saying this. He says... uh, what is it that breathes fire into the questions and makes the. It, it, into, what is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe? The usual approach of science of constructing a mathematical model cannot answer the questions of why there should be a universe for the model to describe. Why does the universe go to all the bother of existing? It's a great question. And one of the most published philosophers of the last hundred years, Anthony Flew, who was an atheist for most of, his, most of his life, and did eventually come to faith in Jesus Christ, said that in his book, Rage Against God, that once, uh, or, or sorry, in his book, There Is No God, he said that once we cross over from examining that which is into asking why things are, we've moved from the realm of empirical science into philosophy. And so I just want to invite you to uh, consider these things this morning as we dive into this Tremendous record of Mary's life and uh, of her account. And uh, perhaps the other thing I should mention quickly before I continue would be that if you were just concocting an ancient tale that you hoped people would believe, you certainly would not put your primary witness of the virgin birth in the text being a young 15, 14, 15-year-old woman. Mary is the primary witness of the virgin birth. And her record in the Magnificat, which I didn't read this morning, is one of the longest speeches in the New Testament. And it's put in the mouth of a 15-year-old woman. And as Mary sings her song, which follows shortly after this text we read this morning... It's deeply rooted in the scriptures of the Old Testament. Mary is a Jewish girl who knows the scriptures. And so as she's responding to this gospel and she's saying, my soul magnifies the Lord, she's quoting many of the things that Sarah and other women in the Old Testament had had declared about God's redemptive plans. So if you were concocting a story that you hoped that Greeks and Romans and Jews would believe in the first century, and it wasn't true, but you're hoping people would latch onto it, you absolutely would not make the primary witness of the virgin birth, one of the primary witnesses of Christ's crucifixion, and one of the primary witnesses of Christ's resurrection, this Mary. Nobody would believe it. I've said it many times here at Redeemer, and just by way of reminding you, but in the Babylonian Talmud, a woman's testimony was not valid in court. You could be an eyewitness to a crime, but if you're a woman, they would just toss it out. That was the world that Mary was born into. So there's just a tremendous gravitas here that's worth sitting in and pausing in as, as uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are in the genre of historical records. They're just writing down. Luke, in particular, was not an eyewitness. He's going back and piecing together the stories and writing down Mary's account. These are things, I think, worth pausing and thinking about. The scriptures, of course, are not about us. They're for us. They deeply change and transform us, but they're actually about Christ. 66 books, 40 authors, a unified story about Jesus that holds this life-changing significance. And before we ever ask the question, what does this text mean to me? The appropriate question is to ask, what does this text mean? So we're going to just break it down this morning and examine a couple of things. First of all, in verse 30, the angel says to Mary, you found favor with God. In the Greek, charis, which is a way of saying grace. You could also translate that text, Mary, God has leaned towards you. It's a way of, of uh, us realizing that God moved first. That God has always moved first. That his grace is constantly moving towards us and we're in this humbling position of response. But not only that, God's grace is towards Mary, but these words reach all the way back to Eden. Because after the fall of uh, mankind in Genesis 3, after divine treason of rejecting God and saying we'd rather be God... God says to the enemy, the, the forces of darkness, that personality that the Hebrew scriptures called Satan. God says in Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This picture of a wounded warrior, a warrior that bruises his heel as he steps on the head of a serpent. This poetry Causing us to imagine who would this wounded warrior be. And then throughout all of scripture and all of uh, human history waiting for the arrival of this one who would bruise uh, and destroy the powers of darkness, Jesus Christ our Lord. There is this profound and unmistakable redemption happening as God approaches Mary here in in the role of woman in God's creation and recreation narrative. There's a significant and glorious redemption that God is doing, and I want us to notice it. Eve was seduced by the word of a fallen angel. Mary is given the good news by the word of a messenger angel. Eve's disobedience and that of her husband opened the way to destruction. Mary's obedience opens the way to salvation. Eve hid. Mary trusted. Eve hid after disbelieving God's word. Mary trusted and believed God's word and hid his word in her heart. Glorious redemption that God is bringing together right from Genesis 3 in the incarnation and the promise of the incarnation in Jesus Christ. So we're going to examine Mary's response. We're going to begin with her opening word, behold. She says, behold, this is an act of worship. It's an announcement of trust. The word behold means to look or to see. But more than that, in the context of the way that Mary is using it, it would be like this week if you're invited to a Christmas party. You open the door, the room is full of friends, the food is on the table, the music is spinning. And you open the door and you say, behold, it is I, Your friend who is much loved, who you have invited to the party. None of you would do that, because it would be weird. But it would also be totally congruent with Mary's use of behold. It's not just saying, look. She's saying, look at me in relation to who I am to you. That's what's going on here. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. I know who I am. I see who I am in relationship to you. The whole flow of Christian worship, of, of, our, of our liturgy, is seeing ourselves in relation to who God is. Every Sunday we come here and we go through the same liturgy on purpose. God calls, God cleanses, God communes, God commissions. Behold, we come, we show up, we worship God. There's a call to worship. We praise his name. We want to see him for who he is. When we see him for who he is, we see ourselves for who we are. Greatly in need of his grace of his forgiveness, of his empowering Holy Spirit, of his presence. And so that leads to confession. And the confession leads to the cleansing. And God does the cleansing by grace. And after the cleansing comes the communion. We commune with God through his scriptures, through his word, through prayer, through the Lord's table. And then he commissions us as we go. Behold, we see ourselves in relation to who you are. This is what Mary's doing here. Mary chose to trust God In a way that's going to bring her to the absolute end of herself. Every day of her young life. She's not given a lot of clarity at all. She's given very little clarity at all. And God's leaning towards her. His grace towards her. His love towards her. Is not going to make her life easy. Or understandable. Or painless. It's going to make it incredibly difficult. But she chooses to trust him in this tremendous way. And I want you to see how God's grace is at work here. He doesn't just show up and and uh, say that, you know, the the power of God is going to cause for the miraculous virgin birth to occur, and then after that, good luck with your life, Mary. God's power will, the, the text says, overshadow you, Mary. God's power will envelop you. So it's not just a momentary, divine, mysterious visitation by which she's pregnant with the Christ child. It is an ongoing, empowering visitation Relationship by God's grace—it's—it's it's the life. God's power, His presence is going to overshadow you. Is going to envelop you. Not just in this one moment, but ongoing. And we see that in Mary's life. She's incredibly young. She's probably fourteen or fifteen years old, which at that in that uh, culture and at that time in world history was completely normal to be betrothed. Um, and yet, in that incredibly young age, she has this depth of character and worship and devotion and trust, and a staggering understanding of the scriptures. Because when you read her when you read her Magnificat, the song that she sings is full of the of the Hebrew text. She has just a tremendous understanding of God's promises and of His Word. She would have known the prophets Isaiah's words. Right? We, read the, we read the scripture every Advent season that behold, the virgin will be with child and now that she has this angelic visitation, this is, this is like, she's like, whoa, this is that? I am the one that the prophecies, do you understand that it's, it's mind-boggling? But yet she's this young woman of tremendous character and love and faith and trust because God's grace had come towards her and she had responded. And when I think of myself at 14, 15, 14, uh, in relationship to how like i related to god think about yourself maybe you had maybe you didn't relate to god at all maybe you were like god does not exist when you're 14 or 15 when i was when i was that age god was like a vending machine to me i was like when i need something i'll pray and ask for it otherwise as you were re- prayer to me was like was like rubbing a lamp god was like a cosmic genie and then if your prayer gets answered in the way that you asked for it, that means maybe God exists. But if it doesn't, then you question him all the time. I mean, my whole way of relating to God was, was nothing like this. Mary loves God for God. Mary trusts God because he is God. It's, it's a profound maturity that can only flow from marveling. And our maturity only ever flows from marveling, from worship, from the... The humbling power of of God's work in in our life. And it's just incredible to see in her young life that she responds in this way. Let's move on to the next thing she says. Which is she calls herself a servant of the Lord. She knows who she is. Living from a humble confidence in our identity. As a child of God aware of the provision and the promise and everything that implies, that produces a security despite great uncertainty. She's entering into a life of tremendous uncertainty. She has very little detail here other than she knows that she's going to be an outcast. But she has no concept of everything this is going to imply. But yet there is this Security in great uncertainty. She calls herself a servant of the Lord, and in the Greek, it's a the meaning has broad meaning. It can mean you can be a servant because a political power came in, took over the region, and now you're a slave. And they would use the Greek word, you know, doule, You could be a slave, but it could also mean servant, like you don't have any choice in the matter, and you're you're not uh, you're not an, you're not an oppressed slave, but you don't own anything. You don't own any land. You don't own your home. So therefore. You are a servant uh, your whole life. You're an economic slave. It could mean that. It could also mean that you willingly love the person that you are serving and you're giving your life for the person you're serving. And you're a slave to them in the way that when someone is in love and you fall in love, it's like you are a slave to that love. The difference being that you, you want it and you happily do it. From everybody else's point of view, it might seem like you're being dragged around by your nose, but from your point of view, you want every minute of it. You're quite happy to do it because of just the depth of the love. And Mary says, I'm a servant of the Lord. I I am willingly giving up my will and my life and what I understood my life to be for your will. So what's interesting here about being a servant of the Lord is there's nothing diminishing about it. She's favored. She's cherished. She's loved. In fact, in that culture... She would have been, for all intents and purposes, invisible. And now she's seen. And so Mary presents herself in worship and in rightness because by God's grace, she knows who she is. She's the servant of the Lord. And if we were to roll this idea of servanthood into all the other identities that the New Testament gives us, right? We are servants of the Lord. We are, John 15, friends of Jesus. We are, Romans chapter 1, sons and daughters If we were to roll all of these things together, the son, the daughter, the friend, the servant, we roll it all together to to try and get a full dynamic picture of discipleship. If we were to look at discipleship like light going through a prism and just cascading all these different colors and and versions of it, we would see that to be a disciple of God is this dynamic picture of soul-strengthening love. This heart and this mind willing to be recalibrated. Willing to trust, willing to be renewed and reformed by our Father's love and wisdom in His Word. Even when the immediate road ahead is completely unclear, totally riddled with risk, and you've got all these trials and uncertainties waiting for you on Monday, and they're all very intimidating. When you are secure in your identity, there is stability. An idea of identity goes far deeper for the Christian... But in answering the question, who am I? It is, whose am I? And understanding understanding whose we are gives tremendous sense of stability and security, security as we consider who we are. And throughout biblical history, God has been in a practice of temple making. And I regularly revisit this theme. It's a massive theme in the scriptures. And we see it again here in this text. I often talk about how the, the the book of Genesis, the Garden of Eden, is a poetic image of a temple. It is the realm of God in this realm of earth, beautifully in sync. Together, that's the poetry. The book of Revelation, it's revisited again. As the poetry is, it's, it says, the city of God, the city of Jerusalem is coming down to earth. It's poetry to say, a day is coming again, where God will reunite with the city. God's plan and vision for a city flourishing, for humanity's flourishing, is that... Reuniting of the spirit in the presence of God with this glorious and beautiful creation, this earth. And here we see the temple again. Constantly God's making temples and Mary is the first flesh and blood temple. We, since Mary, are all spiritual temples. She's the first and the only flesh and blood temple As she carries the Christ child. Mary offers her body, her heart, her mind. And so therefore, Mary's love and integrity, her character, her purity, what she did with her body. All of it mattered because she was quite literally the temple of God. And united to Christ by grace and faith alone, our love and integrity and character and purity... And the things that we do with our bodies matters because we now, by the indwelling power of the Spirit, are the temples of God. Romans chapter 12, Paul picks up on this when he writes, you present your bodies as living sacrifices, which is your spiritual worship. Mary was a true believer, this obedient woman of faith, and she believed these words, treasured these words, pondered these words. Mary allows Christ to be formed in her, and then she carries the Christ child with her. Mary nurtures Jesus. Then she becomes a disciple of Jesus. Then Mary follows Jesus, listens to Jesus, and eventually becomes a witness of the life, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus. And you and I, now, by faith, full of the Holy Spirit, we, like Mary, should allow Christ to be formed in us, carry Christ with us. Nurture our relationship with Christ within us. Become disciples of Christ. Followers of Christ. Listen to the words and the teachings and the ways of Christ. Be witnesses of the death and the resurrection of Christ in our city. With boldness and with humility. May we be able to say like Mary. We're, sh- we're servants of the Lord. And the last thing she says is. Let it be to me according to your word. And this is not just like. Kesara sarah, shoulder shrug. In 1970, Paul McCartney wrote a song called Let It Be. And the line uh, in the song leading to the chorus says, When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me. Speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Now, McCartney's mom died when he was 14, and he was a very anxious kid. And we talked about writing the song. We talked about how he had a very anxious dream. And and, uh, in the dream, his mother, whose name was Mary, his mother comes to him. And she says, it's going to be okay, let it be. And so he writes this heartwarming song, this, this positive sentiment. Learn to live with the reality of your life. Your mother is gone, right? But this let it be is significantly more animated than that. This is not just learn to live with the reality of your life. Mary is not shoulder-shrugging, like, well, I mean, you're the creator of the cosmos. You spun the, sk- the stars into the sky, and I'm a 15-year-old girl, so yeah, I guess God's going to do his will. She's not shoulder-shrugging, let it be. This is not passively resigning. In the Greek, um, the, 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 the tone of the verb that's used in the Greek means active welcoming. So something has gone on by the power of the Spirit and God's grace in this young woman that she's not passively resigning. She's actively welcoming. I welcome your will to change my life. And may this, by the the work of the Spirit, may this be the way that we relate to our God and to our Savior Jesus. I actively welcome your will to change my life. Greetings, highly favored one. God is with you. What do you think that means? See, when we piece this all together, and we look at it, greetings, highly favored one. God's leaned towards you. His grace, his power, everything is moving towards you. Not, the message is not, you're just going to be along for the ride. This is revival. And God is going to do something tremendous. The redemptive culmination of his plan of the Savior coming to earth. And Mary believes this. Uh, Dr. Jamie uh, Sanchez is the professor of intercultural studies at Biola University. And he points out that later in Luke's gospel, there's a time when uh, this woman in the crowd shouts out to Jesus and says, Jesus, uh, blessed is the mother who gave birth to you and blessed are the breasts that nurse you. And Jesus says back to the woman, not thanks or not. Yeah, my mom was the best. Jesus shouts back and says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and do it. What does he mean? Yes, my mother is blessed, but the reason she's blessed is she believed this word. And Jesus says, blessed, yes. But don't bless my mother because she nursed me and raised me. Bless her because she believed in the word of God. And that's what's going on here. Verses 32 and 33. And you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Our kingdoms end all the time. Every kingdom throughout world history has come to an end. And every kingdom in world history will come to an end at some time. Either by swords, or tanks, or bombs, or guns, or bullets, or politics, or pens, or elections. We build into our elections a system by which we can bring a kingdom to an end. So every kingdom comes to an end. In Canadian history, we have wove back and forth for 150-something years between conservative and liberal kingdoms, and they just continually come to ends. And right now all of the conservatives are like just wringing their hands, waiting for the liberal kingdom to come to an end. Oh, and then salvation will come, won't it? Oh, the salvation will come. And then the liberals, uh, uh, well, that kingdom will come to an end. It will. They always have. It will again. And then the conservatives will come into political power. And then all of the liberals will be wringing their hands. Oh, destruction is, among, is upon us. Oh, for the salvation of the liberals! And some of you are here saying, Now, wait a second, I belong to some other parties. Let's not leave them out. Don't worry. If they ever get their chance, it would be incredible if there were some other opportunities and flavors. And, I mean, it would be amazing if there was three horses in the race or four. But then, if when they get their chance, their kingdom will come to an end. Every kingdom comes to its end. But of Christ's kingdom, there will be no end. This is why... The celebration of the church is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of every prior word. He is God's final word, the jaw-dropping culmination of God throughout history. Jesus spoke about the gospel, which means good news, before he ever went to the cross. So what was the gospel? It was he was bringing his kingdom. He was going to bring the renewal that every heart cries for, that we, through our best efforts, cannot achieve. We are homeless utopians. But the kingdom that Christ brings with his return will have no end. And it isn't some ethereal, mysterical, outer space kingdom. It is the renewal of planet Earth and our bodies. The resurrection of Jesus Christ attests to this. And this is the kingdom that he has come to bring. This is why the Bible is unavoidably political. And I don't mean political in a partisan way. I mean... Political proper. The Bible is unavoidably political because there is a kingdom, but it's not ours. There is a king. There is a law. There is a truth. There is a pathway for the city to flourish. There is a pathway for humanity to flourish. There is a pathway for the soul to flourish. And it requires that we bend our knee to the king. To trust him and his wisdom and his way. So as Christians, we are dual citizens. We live peaceably and in harmony in our neighborhoods and in our city. We seek the good of our city But we recognize we don't need to get all bent out of shape and lose sleep because we already have a king. And his kingdom will have no end. The cross of Christ, his substitutionary sacrifice, his divine resurrection, his ascension. It's the key that turns the ignition on God's plan to renewal. And so we celebrate at Christmas because in a surprising contradiction to what humanity deserves, because we hate God and we don't want God... God did not come and incarnate in human flesh to bring judgment. He came to bear our judgment. And that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. The Father unfolds his plan for redemption. Mary actively receives this life-altering call to participate in the Father's plan for redemption. Christ the King would come and accomplish this redemption. And the Spirit will overshadow and indwell his church So that through the proclamation of the gospel, God will continue his work of redemption. May we go into our city in boldness, with gentleness, and give defense for the hope that we have in Christ. Amen. Let's pray.